I'm Rachel Hampton. And I'm Candace Slim, and you're listening to ICYMI. In case you missed it, Slate's podcast about internet culture. Oh my God. Hi, Candace. How are you? How was your weekend? I am good. I did watch the movie Jumanji, the one with <gasps> Dwayne The Rock Johnson, after all these years for the first time. So it was delightful, learned a lot. I unironically love that movie so much. It's truly one of my favorite movies to watch when I'm just like a little bit sad because it's so good. Yes. Yes. Who would have thought Jack Black playing a teenage girl could be that heartwarming? Mm-hmm. Falling in love with Nick Jonas. Can you believe it? Yes. More people should be talking about this. Maybe I'll do that this weekend. <laughs> um, I did not watch Jumanji this weekend. I did see something that did bring me joy, though, which was my Irish 6'4 legend, Mm. Hozier. I saw him at concert at Madison Square Garden. It's his very first Madison Square Garden show. He brought out his dad to play a song with him. I communed. I felt like if they offered a discount on Lexapro as you were walking in, it would have really <laughs> gone over well. Because when I looked around the audience, I saw myself. <laughs> I was like, all of us here have some form of clinical anxiety. I can feel it deep in my chest. It was just so good. It was so fun. I had a great time. And then I continue to have a great time because the day after I watched the premiere of The Golden Bachelor. <gasps> we got to talk about this because first off, same. Second off, I watched it live. I'm caught up. What are your thoughts so far, Rachel? Okay, before I say my thoughts, I just want to shout out the Waves Golden Bachelor Recap Podcast, which is being hosted by the incredible Shayna Roth, who you have heard here on this podcast talking about Below Deck with Candace. You might hear one of us on it at some point, but in the meantime, y'all should definitely be checking it out. Now for my thoughts. I loved it. That's it. That's my entire thought. It was perfect from top to bottom. Truly, The Bachelor is back, baby. Best thing they've produced in years. Yeah, no, I agree. Like, I am not firmly Bachelor Nation. I did watch the pandemic episodes, and those were a little different. Those were, like, kind of interesting. I think The Golden Bachelor is absolutely refreshing, renewing, rejuvenation nation this series. I really, really, really like the first episode. And I mean, should we talk front runners? Should we talk favorites? Do you have any? Yes, yes. One of them is literally the first one out of the car. Her name is Edith. Mm. When I tell you Edith is 60, Edith has the most beautiful hair I have ever seen in my entire life. It is this gorgeous gray And it's so full. There's so much volume. I Mm -hmm. pray to God to have the volume that she has at the age of 60. She's just stunning. And everyone is like, what's her skincare routine? And I'm like, girlies, it's Botox. Like, (laughs) not a single eyebrow lifted more than a few inches this episode. And that's okay. But, like, it's not Aquaphor. It might be partially Aquaphor, but it's definitely Botox. My Mm -hmm. second favorite is also Gary's favorite, a.k.a. The Golden Bachelor. And her name is Faith. She mm. came out on a motorcycle yes. and played a song on a guitar. And then her voice was actually really beautiful. Mm-hmm. And you could just see Gary falling in love. You know what it was? It was Camp Rock, Demi Lovato, Joe Jonas on that log. Yes, it was. This is real. This is me. I'm exactly 
where I'm supposed to be. Mm-hmm. Okay. I don't know who is going to win. If I have to put one person, I think is going to make the final four. I'm going to put Edith mm-hmm. in there. I think she definitely has kind of like the energy he wants. I really like Ellen. I think she was the one with the blue, like f- big flowery dress. I kind of liked her yeah. too. Love Sandra. Sandra, gorgeous voice, classy woman. I want to see her go far, mm-hmm. but I don't know if she will. But for now, I'm going to root for her. And then we come to Leslie. Okay. Leslie is the dance <laughs> instructor who was wearing like a strapless top. You know, she was doing mm-hmm. some dancing with Gary. And I'm just mm-hmm. going to say this. I think Leslie activates Jerry's fuckboy era, and I get it. I get it. Fantasy suites exist for a reason, and I think he will keep her in. He will keep her in the running, at least for that. So, Gary, do what you got to do. And you know, the premiere of Golden Bachelor really has me thinking that we might be in a cultural moment of old things, you know, old people finding Ooh. love, old mm-hmm. TV shows and movies getting chopped and screwed and rebooted and revived and like whatever else. Old clothes, you know, becoming popular again. And no, we will not be talking about the return of low rise denim. Wear whatever denim you want. It's okay. Thank you, Candace. I will not be partaking in low rise denim mm-hmm. as if I ever could. But you're right. <laughs> It feels like if there was a word of the decade, a word to kind of sum up the vibe that so many people are trying to evoke, it would be nostalgia. Everyone's looking back at the past with these rose-colored glasses. <laughs> rose, like Bachelor. Oh. Like the Bachelor hands out roses. But everyone's looking back at the past with these rose-colored glasses from Tradwives to makeup influencers who are currently clamoring to bring back the 2016 makeup era, which... Sure, why not? <laughs> to the teens walking around Washington Square in New York who were all basically new NYU students, and they're wearing, you know those slouchy brown suede leather boots that we wore in middle school? Yes, yes. Like the hat in Harry Potter, the deciding hat. Literally, yes. Everyone's wearing those right now. Everything old is new, and everything new is old. Which makes it a perfect time to chat with some nostalgia experts. You know, Jessica Bennett, Susie Banacaram, they are the hosts of the recently launched podcast In Retrospect, which they describe as their ticket to a fascinating re-examining of the plot lines, punchlines, language, fashion items, and even the sense. Axe body spray anyone that left an indelible mark on our collective memories. They have a truly incredible lineup of guests, including the director of Bottoms, Emma Seligman, journalist and advice columnist E. Jean Carroll, and the one and only Pamela Anderson. And today, they're here. And they're going to crack open the pages of their internet diaries for us. After a short break, we'll be busting out our pink fuzzy pins that we got from the Scholastic Book Fair. We're going to be paging through our Delia's catalogs with Jess and Susie. Hey, listeners. Hope you're enjoying today's show. If this is your first time listening, then welcome. We are thrilled to have you here. In case you missed it, our show comes out twice a week on Wednesdays and Saturdays. So make sure you never miss an episode like this past Saturday's on Bobby Altoff, the podcaster that kind of came out of nowhere and ended up interviewing Drake. Take a listen. And we're back. Today, we are joined by the host of In Retrospect. It's a new podcast that takes a second look at some of the biggest moments in pop culture. 
Mm-hmm. And I have to say, guys, I'm very impressed by their lineup so far because if you're like a soap opera person, for example, they have this great episode about Luke and Laura's possibly problematic love story on General Hospital. And they just did a really great episode about Pamela Anderson and her iconic Baywatch swimsuit. Highly recommend you check these episodes out. So without further ado, here they are, the hosts of In Retrospect, Susie Banacarum and Jessica Bennett. Hi, guys. Thank you for Hi. coming on the show. Hi. Thank you Thanks for, having, for us. having us. So uh, listeners of this podcast, they know that in order to get inducted into the ICYMI universe, we call it the ICU, there is one question we have to ask, which is... What is your first internet memory? I think this counts as internet, but you tell me if it doesn't, which is I have this memory that I was dating this guy in college and he was like, hey, what's your email address? And I was like, what kind of dork has an email address? Like, why would I have that? (laughs) (laughs) And he was like, no, it's like really cool. Like, this is how you find it. And I was like, just use the phone like a normal person. So that's my first real memory of something internet related that is also very embarrassing for me. What was your first email address? Do you remember? Oh, well, it was a college address. So it was SB293 at, you know, whatever, EDU. So, I mean, that's like, I still have that address because they like just gave, used to give them to you when you graduated. But yeah, so that was my first experience. And then there was this really weird thing when I was at Barnard, anyone who was at Columbia could log into a computer and see when the last time you checked your email was. Like literally anyone who just knew your email address. Really? Yeah. So first of all, you can imagine how much stalking went on. Like people would literally be like, that guy's a butler. Let's go. And you'd be like chasing some guy like through the library. Like it was so weird. But also I just feel the need to tell you that it was called, and I'm not making this up, fingering someone. (laughs) Like I don't know who made that up. No. But it would literally be like, hey, that's what you do. You, I can't even like, it's just so gross. Was that like a play on poke? Do you think? Because remember Facebook poking? This was before Facebook. Oh, my God. Wow. I'm sorry to make you fall that up, Jessica. But <laughs> I know. Seriously, mine's like pretty basic compared to that. But um, I learned how to type on AIM. We were all like learning how to type on keyboards. And, you know, no one really paid attention in class. But then you wanted to like chat with your friends slash crushes slash whomever when you got home. And so you just had to learn how to type faster. Um, so that's really my first memory on my parents, like giant, giant, I guess it was a Macintosh back then, like whatever the first edition was or not, probably not the first edition because they were not tech savvy, like sitting at the communal table. Um, and then choosing my first screen name, just seven Bennett, because seven nice. was my soccer number. Nice. Um, which is like still my name for a lot of things, like so many people who chose their screen names at age mm-hmm. 15 or whatever. Oh, yes. My Twitter handle, my Instagram handle, all of it is tied to a choice I made at an age I can't even remember anymore. And I'm just like, well, glad that's following me around for the rest of my life. Actually, I feel like that's the perfect segue into my next question, which is what was the first fandom you joined and where did you find them? I was really into Tumblr. I mean, I still am into Tumblr. And at a certain point, I ended up working at Tumblr. So the first fandom community that I became involved with was the Directioners. That is fans of One Direction. Oh, welcome to the podcast. One Direction? Like, I feel like... (laughs) (laughs) I mean, I learned everything from the Directioners. And and at a certain point, we decided we were going to have 
One Direction, like One D Day takeover Tumblr. And so I got to go hang out with all of these directioners and we were like producing this mini documentary video about it. And then we actually got to go to the show and then we got to sit down and do an interview with the the guys. Um, But I learned so many vocabulary words. I learned so much about passion and love. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Um, I learned that ovaries could explode when you saw someone in a GIF on the internet or GIF still still fighting that um, pronunciation. And yeah, and I I loved it and I I still love it. I can't beat that because I, I've never been part of like a sort of classic fandom. I think the only thing I've come close to is I'm really into Bravo. Like I'm full, like sort of Real Housewives, Vanderpump Rules. So I've, that fandom I've been part of and I really discovered on Twitter because that's sort of where the primary activity was until recently. And it's kind of hard because there hasn't been an obvious replacement for that. There's some of it on Instagram, but I really miss that part of Twitter and um, I don't know where it's going to end up. So I'm, I, I'm sort of curious to see what happens. What does a typical day on the internet look like? I'm assuming if you are like us, you wake up, uh, you say you're not going to look at your phone first thing in the morning and then you look at your phone first thing in the morning and it barely leaves your side for the entire day. So take me through that day. So I actually start every day with the New York Times spelling bee. Um, I don't know if anybody else does that, but that's like the first thing I do when I wake up. It's just a way to slowly re-enter the world and to get my brain going. Um, and then I probably check Slack next, which is a boring answer, but I just check to see like what's going on for work. And then I do email and then I just get on my laptop. So a good amount of the day on the laptop isn't like is mostly just like work stuff, right? But then I think for where I'm spending my time, like if I have a minute, it's mostly Instagram now. I will say I should just dispense of this because now I've mentioned it two or three times is that, you know how everyone has like their social platform? My social platform was unfortunately Twitter. And so I feel like a real sense of loss about that. I know it sounds sort of dorky, but you know, that's kind of where I went to like, see people I knew and check in and sort of see what was going on. So I would normally have gone and like checked Twitter probably right after Slack, but, and it was often how I just like scan the headlines, but now that's not really an option. So I will check like the New York times app. I will like um, check some newsletters I get. That's where I get a lot of my news now. And then if I have some spare time, I will do TikTok at night. I find TikTok to be like the most soothing place. I think because it's so algorithmic. So it is just giving me what I want, which is like dog videos and makeup Mm. tutorials (laughs) and like funny asides. I don't get anything that's like toxic or weird on TikTok. Whereas I definitely can't say that about when I was on Twitter all the time. So that's kind of what I do at the end of the night sometimes if I want to just like chill out. No, that that totally makes sense. Jess, how about you? What does a typical day on the internet look like for you? Yeah, what does it look like for me? Uh, Okay, so I guess I will say that as someone who, you know, came of age on MySpace and then like did the Facebook thing and was like briefly on Friendster and then, you know, built this platform on Tumblr and then was on Instagram and then like what else, what were the other thing like there have been so many iterations of like ways to be online um throughout the course of my professional career that I am not 
really heavily on TikTok because I just couldn't handle another platform. Um, that said, I love hearing about what's going on TikTok. So I teach a class at um, NYU at the journalism school and it's called Reporting the Zeitgeist. Um, and I joke that like th- these students are my Gen Z beards because I <laughs> teach them how to report and write and they teach me what's going on on the internet. So lately um, I have them, they have to send links every week of what they're seeing and, and engaging with online. Um, and I love reading those. That's my favorite thing to do because they're always highlighting things that I didn't know existed. Um, and then I'm helping them kind of link or connect the dots, um, into ways that they could cover these things. So I'm checking what they've sent in their weekly roundup links. So I wanted to ask a little bit about just kind of our journalism backgrounds a little bit, because, you know, Susie, you used to be the head of News Advice. Jessica, you were the first gender editor at The New York Times. So I think all of us here have had to interact with the Internet as part of our jobs as journalists. And one of the questions that me and Rachel get a lot as people who cover the Internet talk about culture is, How do we have fun on the internet when it's our job? And so I kind of wanted to ask you guys the same question. Like, you know, is there a space or a site where you go to where that like little voice in your head that says this could be a story just kind of shuts off and you can just be a human in the space? No, never. (laughs) (laughs) I don't know if I have that either. I mean, mostly I'd say that if I'm watching like makeup tutorials on TikTok or on YouTube, I'm not looking for a story. Although every once in a while there is like a scan And then I'm like, is this something worth covering? So it is hard to completely like detach yourself from it. But I think also really, even if you're not a journalist who covers internet culture, you spend a lot of your time online looking for stories, right? So I think it's really hard to live online as a journalist and not kind of see it as a constant source of information. But then maybe that's also just like being a journalist in life. Well, it is because like the internet is culture. No, it's like, yeah. mm-hmm. they're not, it's not like you're going to the internet to find a thing. It's just like, that's where things are happening. That actually leads me into my next question, which is a topic I have a lot of thoughts on, but I only want to hear your thoughts on. I don't want to have any good thoughts, um, which is your show is about kind of like pop culture moments from the 80s and the 90s that shaped y'all. And I feel like we're in this time where nostalgia is kind of like the currency of the decade in a way. And I wanted to ask how y'all think nostalgia shapes our kind of current internet experience and also just our current cultural experience. Yeah. I often think like, okay, did every generation feel like this where suddenly the things that you grew up on are back and you're like, you feel kind of weird about it because there's like, you know, 16 year olds explaining your fashion to you. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, or is that just us? And I think it's like some combination of the two, but clearly we are in a moment of nostalgia right now. And you could argue that maybe that has a little something to do with coming out of a pandemic. Like the past feels familiar and safe. And like research has found that in times of stress, we turn to things from our childhood to make us feel better about ourselves. Um, Or you could argue that, I don't know, we've like stopped coming up with unique ideas. And so we're just remaking Polly Pocket and Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles and Barbie um, Mm -hmm. through different angles, through fresh, very fresh angles in a lot of ways. But everywhere I go now, the songs from like my senior year in high school are playing like everywhere. Um, And I kind of like it. I feel very uh, hip again um, as (laughs) someone who's aging out of cool, but it's a weird moment. And when we were first thinking about this podcast, we were kind of like, 
is is nostalgia like are we sick of nostalgia to some extent or like is this played out like everyone's doing this to some degree yeah I don't know if I have a good answer for this either I mean one thing that's interesting is I have a niece who's um 23 who by the way loves this show she was very impressed that I was gonna be on so thank you for that um anytime I get to appear cool to her it's a good day um and she is like really into the things that we were into, right? Like, you know, her, like, sense of style, like, the things she likes to wear, um, the things, like, the music she listens to. There's kind of, like, a flattening. So, whereas we might have been, like, really into the hippie era, I didn't really have as much access to that as my niece does to the stuff that we were into. So, I do think that there is this kind of accessibility that's different, right? You can really feel like you're reliving something or, like, this whole thing where people are re-watching shows that were popular 10 years ago and are sort of like now becoming popular again, that feels to me very much like a thing that's going to feel unique to this decade, right? Where you can kind of like relive Suits or relive Gilmore Girls or, you know, all these shows that we loved, but that I watched like on TV and I had to like wait for the next week to come out, right? So that's a very different thing than what we had. I think part of the reason we really wanted to look at the 80s and 90s, though, was that we were trying to kind of examine that nostalgia and what it meant. Like, to me, what's sort of the point of our show is that we did love these things, but these things were complicated, right, in a lot of cases. And so what we're trying to kind of explore is like, what of those things do you love? And also, what are you willing to kind of leave behind? And I think that's an important part of the process, because just sort of uncritically being like, it was all great, doesn't really work. Because sometimes you'll rewatch something and you'll be like, this is great in a way, but also Mm -hmm. it is really complicated in other ways that maybe... I didn't even see, like, we do um, an episode about Dawson's Creek because Jess was a big Dawson's Creek fan. And I rewatched the first season and I was like, I did not get any of the sexual innuendo. Like, I did not know Mm. what they were talking about. I did not realize how sexually loaded this show was. And it's kind of fun to sort of see things as an adult and be like, oh, there's like a whole layer here I missed the first time. So that part's interesting, too, to me. Definitely. And I really love what you're saying about kind of complicating nostalgia, both like complicating the thing that people are nostalgic about. But something that I've found is that there's this kind of reflexive, like both shock and non-understanding of where nostalgia is coming from. Like right now, like I saw recently, someone was like, imagine being in high school in 2016. And I was like, why? That was so recently. Why would you want that? Why does it, that doesn't make any sense. Why, why would you possibly be nostalgic for that? But then you think about what high school is like right now for a lot of people. And you're like, oh, maybe it does seem better because you're not attached to your phones as much or like you're not dealing with the kind of recentness of the pandemic. Like there's this way in which I think nostalgia gets a bad rep. It's either really negative or glowing. There's no real in between. And I really appreciate that y'all are just like, nostalgia is a thing and we should be talking about it, but it's not, you know, Polly Pocket pink colored glasses. (laughs) Well, and I think the other thing too, Susie, you were talking about kind of unraveling layers, but it's like, we didn't necessarily realize at the time we were watching these shows, whether it's Dawson's Creek or something else, or we didn't acknowledge necessarily because we were like teenagers, what was going on in the culture at the time, like politically or socioeconomically. And so to rewatch these shows and then to try to understand historically what was happening in America has 
really helped to contextualize for us why things were the way they were. So like in the Dawson's Creek episode, the storyline we're focused on is Pacey and his high school English teacher who he has an affair with. Mm-hmm. And I grew up in Seattle. This was playing out um, the latter years of my high school. It was at the same time that the Mary Kay Letourneau case, um, she was the woman who worked at a school in Seattle who got impregnated by her 12-year-old student, um, was all over the news. And it was very much informing how this show was put together and why they were taking on the storylines that they did. But at the time, I'm like a sophomore in high school watching this show with my friends. I'm not recognizing that. And even to rewatch it now without that context, I feel like is really different. Yeah. I mean, I think also the other thing that's interesting is we do often think that things were so different. Like I'm always like, oh, it must be so different to be 13 today. And I do think, listen, I do think there was a benefit to being able to go home and not have any access to what your peers were doing. Like I didn't have Instagram. I didn't have Snapchat. I didn't have TikTok. And that I think probably was great because I got to go home and just be home and that maybe wasn't great for some people, but at least for me, it felt like a safe space. But you know, Jess just did this thing about being 13 for the New York Times. And it was sort of this like examination. She spent a bunch of months with 13 year olds. And honestly, what I was surprised by in reading that feature was how much I related to it. Like I was like, that is how it felt to be 13. Like, I don't think it's as different as we think it is because the feelings, the sort of insecurities, the frustrations, those are the same, even if the sort of context has changed a little bit. And I actually was kind of reassured by that, you know? I mean, it's horrible to be a 13-year-old girl a lot of the time, but it is also just this, like, real moment that feels, like, very much part of becoming who you eventually will be. It's, like, such, feels like such a critical time when you're growing up, and you feel so grown up when you're 13 and you're so little, and I think that being consistent across the ages is kind of nice. Like I, I find that kind of reassuring in the reporting. That's interesting. Yeah. We haven't actually talked about this yet. Um, so I like that you saw yourself in it. Yeah. I mean, it's true. Like these, so it was, I followed three girls who were 13 throughout the course of their eighth grade year. Um, and the idea was to look at what happens when you can legally join social media platforms at age 13, but 13 right around that age is also when girls self-esteem tends to plummet um, compared to their male peers. So I kind of wanted to see the intersection of that and try to understand what it is to be a teenager today. And like Susie said, yeah, it's like so many of the issues we all face. It's like insecurity. It's, you know, friendship drama. It's finding out who you are. It's like coming into your identity and your sexuality. It's figuring out your place in the social hierarchy. It's like raging hormones and everything feels like so big that you don't even have the words to express it. And then that's all happening with the phone in the background. So it's like maybe amplifying the highs and the lows, but I don't think in any way it's all bad. Um, So anyhow, how this relates back to nostalgia, I mean, it will be interesting for those girls when they grow up to look back on the time that they spent on the internet and if there's even any digital record of it, like will those platforms even exist with their stories? Have, will they all have been sold off to someone or I don't know. Um, one of my students last semester did a piece called who am I uh, if I no longer have my Tumblr blog because she had come of age on Tumblr and her whole identity was wrapped up in her blog. And then suddenly it got 
disappeared. Um, and she felt like this huge gaping hole in the formation of her identity as a teenager. And so she went back and tried to find it. And I think this was part of when Tumblr was like just flushing random um, websites for porn and a lot of really good non-porny things got lost in the process. It is actually an interesting thing, though, that I think about a lot, which is that at the beginning of the internet, they told us it was forever. Like, they were like, if you put anything online, it lives forever. But now what we're seeing is just, like, huge chunks of internet culture kind of disappearing because there isn't just, like, enough server space to just house all this stuff forever. Who's paying for that, you know? Like, we're seeing whole websites disappear and people's writing and blogs in there. And, like, I was an early Friendster person. I have no idea what was on that Friendster blog, and I don't think anyone could find it, you know, if they were looking for it. So there is also this interesting thing where there was this period where I think you grew up and there was this documentation of your whole life, right? That That was sort of like an era after me. There was no documentation of my awkward 13-year-old years. And I'm pretty grateful for that, if I'm honest. (laughs) But I think now that's like sort of happening again, because there's so much information that it gets lost in the flood. And that's maybe better. I don't know. It's hard to say. It really is. uh, The kind of paradox of things lasting forever and also disappearing without notice something I feel like that comes up on this show like pretty often but speaking of disappearing we have to take a short break but when we come back we are going to ask Susie and Jessica about how they deal with the good and bad of the internet and we're going to ask about their golden rules for scrolling responsibly all that and more after the break back with the hosts of In Retrospect, Susie Banacaram and Jessica Bennett. Okay, so we have a few more questions for you guys. I'm going to start off here. What are your personal rules for engaging online? So how often do you post? Where do you post? And maybe more importantly, how do you pick who to fight and who to ignore. <laughs> Susan, you go first. Oh my God. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I'm going to go first because I feel like Jess is much more buttoned up and professional online. I've definitely had my fair share of internet spats. Um, and actually recently someone said to me like, you're a little scary on Twitter. <laughs> and I was like, okay, well, first of all, I'm barely on Twitter anymore. So, but I think what happened with me is I worked at ABC News for a long time. And when you, when you work at places like that, you're like not allowed to really be online. Like, you have to be so careful. And then I went and ran the newsroom at Gizmodo Media Group, which, you know, included, like, Jezebel and Gizmodo and Deadspin. And I was a little bit unleashed. I'm not going to lie. Like, I was like, I can say whatever I want, and I will. (laughs) And um, occasionally, it could be a little acerbic. Um, So I've gotten better about that. Like, I've learned to just let things go more. But I also think the death of Twitter has sort of contributed to that, right? Like, there isn't this, like, place we all go as journalists and then every day there's a main character and we all feel like we have to comment on it. It's kind of like diffuse. And that has actually probably made my brain much more calm and also my online presence much more calm. Like I don't think I've had a fight with anyone on the internet for like more than a couple years now. Um, but I will tell you that the, the first time I really like let loose on the internet is kind of a funny story. So I got to... GMG. And there was this Twitter account called the New York Times Fridge. Do you guys remember that? New- oh, Twitter yeah. Account? <laughs> oh, yeah. Are you talking about that like fake Twitter account that was pretending to 
be like the New York Times office fridge. It's very popular, weird account from like 2014, 2015. Yeah. And um, that account DM'd me and was like, I hope you're going to like get your journalists in check. Like this person at Deadspin has been very mean to me. <laughs> and I was just like, this is hilarious. Like this fridge is chastising me. So I took a screenshot of it and I was like, I just tweeted it. And I was like, the fridge is mad. And <laughs> the fridge was so mad that I tweeted the <laughs> screenshot. And then, like, sent me a bunch of DMs about what a jerk I was and how they could see that nothing was changing at Gawker. And I was like, well, I mean, other than Gawker going bankrupt, I guess nothing is changing. I don't know what you want me to say to this, but I just thought this was funny. Um, So I think that is sort of the bygone era. And I do kind of miss that era. You're very good at, at like, an online fight. Like, if if I am ever in trouble, I want you to be on my side. Um, (laughs) I think I'm a little bit opposite, Susie, in that when I started working for the New York Times, it was like, suddenly you couldn't say literally anything anymore, even like the most benign stuff. So I just kind of stopped posting. Um, So I haven't gotten into real battles in a a long time. Um, And I mostly, my rule is mostly don't engage. No, that's so real. I don't think I've ever gotten into an internet fight and thought, yeah, that was a that was a great use of my time. But speaking of great uses of time, I do want to ask, what is your most deeply held but least provable internet conspiracy theory? I'm going to say this, but <laughs> please don't come after me, Beehive. I'm a huge Beyonce fan. I've seen her twice in concert. I'm not saying I think this is true, but I think one of the funniest internet conspiracy theories of all time is when everyone was convinced that Beyonce wasn't really pregnant. And then there were like right. a million charts of her stomach and they like circled it and were like, look, it's folding. Right. Also, it looked actually, like it was folding. <laughs> it did look like it was folding, but I think it was just like, you know, weird photography. But also the other one that I love, which is more current, also, God, please, directioners, don't come after me, is the one that Harry Styles is bald. And it's a Bay. Have you seen those? It's also like, there's like charts. It's like one of those like Law and Order episodes where they're like on the board. They're like, oh, look at the hair and yeah. it's like circled. Yeah. And I just find those particular kind of internet conspiracies funny because they're just like, they're just so ridiculous, but also yeah, it's so funny to me how it's, it's like, time. it's harmless. Yeah. 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 It's harmless. It's harmless, but also I feel like all those fandoms are going to come after me. Am I going to be okay, you guys? Will you protect well, me? Well, you're not really <laughs> saying anything bad. You're, I feel like there's so many of these conspiracies conspiracy theories that I love, but now I'm not thinking of them. But okay, what what did we call the shipping of Harry and Louis? Larry Stylinson. Larry Stylinson. Oh, okay, yes. yes. <laughs> I was I mean like I was pretty convinced of that one. Oh, I mean, I I feel like even if it wasn't physical, it could still have been romantic, you know? (laughs) Yeah. If you had to institute one rule that everyone on the Internet had to follow, what would it be? I will tell you mine for this one, which is do not get into arguments with children on the internet. Okay, that seems standard. Like, that should be a golden rule. Like, just maybe don't get into arguments with children. It seems standard, and yet you will see many adult beefing with someone who has 17 in their bio. <laughs> yeah, that's right, fair. Right, that's right, right. fair. You know, I have a real conflicting feeling about whether or not people should have to be themselves online. Like, I think it would mm-hmm. be interesting to have um, an online world where people just had to be who they were so that oh. they didn't feel like they could hide behind anonymity. Yeah. But then 
the reason I'm, I feel a conflict about that is that I think like about kids who aren't out of the closet yet and who get to be in safe spaces right. where they don't have to be themselves. So it doesn't feel like just an objective good, but I do think there is some good and people not being able to hide behind the sort of anonymity of the internet. Like if you want to say horrible yeah. things to women and to right. people of color and to trans people, you should have to own that. Um, right. But I also do want those people to feel protected. So I don't know. It's a bit of a mixed bag. That's an interesting one, though. I like that as a thought point. Mm-hmm. Yeah. No, that totally makes sense. And I guess this is the last question we have today. But I wanted to ask, what is something that happened this year that you think someone 20 years from now will do an in retrospect episode on the coverage of the Johnny Depp Amber Heard yep. situation. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, and maybe they're already is sort of starting to be in, in retrospect around that. But at the time that was playing out, this was before the podcast launched before we had sold it. And Susie and I were just on the phone all day, every day as we watched <laughs> that trial. And at a certain point, while that was happening, I was writing a piece about Pamela Anderson and kind of rethinking her trajectory. And we just kept saying, like, this is literally happening right now. Like, we are literally yeah. watching this happen. So it's incredible that, like, all of these, I don't know, producers, filmmakers, um, business people are, like, capitalizing on this whole, like, in retrospect moment where we're looking back at all these people who are cast in a different light now and, like, making you know, bucks on it while we are literally doing it to someone else. Um, so that was one. I think the Kardashians are kind of interesting, actually, because mm. I think that there's a lot of people who are willing to kind of just be like very dismissive of them as just like, you know, superficial and stupid. Just like, what do they do? It's so like silly. But, you know, we're going to look back on it. And those are some of the most powerful businesswomen of our time. I mean, mm-hmm. Chris Jenner, mm-hmm. whatever you think of her, has created Brilliant. just like an incredible generational wealth for her whole family. She is definitely someone who I think is treated like a joke, but who is actually really obviously brilliant in many ways. So I think they're kind of an interesting case study in that, like how easily we kind of um, minimize f- female success by sort of making it empty. And I think a little bit, I mean, I don't want to defend this person too much because I do think they're sort of like silly, but I think a little bit about how people talk about Gwyneth Paltrow is also rooted in this. Like she has done something with Goop. I mean, she has made a real business out of it and it is making a lot of money, but she's just treated like this sort of moron and her like silly candles and her <laughs> sex toys or whatever. Mm-hmm. And I think that is also rooted in the ways in which we treat men as like smart when they capitalize on their interests and we treat women as silly. That just made me think of another one. The submarine, the whole submarine. Ocean gate. Yes. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, I just really do not think that you would see women do it, having, being on that sub. (laughs) And they weren't. And they weren't. Uh, And they weren't. And I just think that like the gender scholars are going to come in eventually and Mm -hmm. connect this to like masculinity and not wanting to show weakness and not speaking up. Ooh. Yeah. I, I would like to see that. Uh, by the way, if anyone is wondering, yes, there is ocean gate fan fiction. Uh Uh-huh. How did I find this out? You may ask. Um, it was because I was deep diving into the randomest fan fiction ships. And I was also alerted to something on the internet called, 
Obama, aka the shipping of Harry Styles and oh Barack Obama. God. I know, I know. Uh, I've never been happier than when you discovered this. <laughs> I I love Obama. <laughs> Obama forever. I mean, honestly, like there's there's just so much we can't know all the good things on the internet. And it makes it's me true. so sad. <laughs> and there's so many like what how does Obama not bring you joy? <laughs> All right, that is the show. We will be back in your feed on Saturday, so definitely subscribe. It's the best way to never miss an episode, to never miss an update on our thoughts about The Golden Bachelor. We will have many. Please leave a rating and review on Apple or Spotify and tell your friends about us. You can follow us on Twitter at ICYMI underscore pod. Just also where you can DM us your questions like, when are you going to stop calling it Twitter? The answer is fucking never. And you can also always drop us a note at icymi at slate.com. ICYMI is produced by Sierra Spragley Ricks, Rachel Hampton, and me, Candace Lim. Daisy Rosario is our senior supervising producer, and Alicia Montgomery is Slate's vice president of audio. See you online. Or on Friendster.